promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. We can see how God's covenant to Abraham has been historically fulfilled. And Abraham, down through the ages, is considered by Christians alike to be an absolute hero of the faith. He's a pillar. He is a symbol of strength. He's a father of many nations. And so we read in, verse, in chapter 11 of, of Genesis, those 11 chapters, there's all kinds of things that, that we can learn about Abraham and about God. And yet, we still have to admit this morning, friends, that there's lots in this story that we do not know. In fact, truth be known, there's a lot about the Abraham story there in Genesis chapter 12 down through to Genesis 22 that can only leave us guessing what is really actually going on under the radar. See, much of God, what God is up to is actually left for us to surmise, to wrestle with, figure out what's actually going on. Come to think of it, there's lots of Bible stories like this, isn't there? And the truth is, like so many of those great stories of Scripture, maybe you can testify this morning that it is hard to figure out God sometimes. Maybe you're here this morning with questions for God. It's true. We can look at our life and we can speculate often and we can assume what God is up to and why he's doing what he's doing. But in many instances, at least in my life, maybe yours too, God's motivation is not explicitly presented. The story of Abraham in Genesis 22 is one of those Mysteries. I want us to look at it this morning. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of 22 all the way to 14. Stick with me. I'm reading from the NIV. Some time later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife and as the two of them went on together Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham father yes my son Abraham replied the fire and the wood are here Isaac said but where is the lamb for the burnt offering Abraham answered God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. 
And when they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it, and he bound his son Isaac, picture it, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Very first thing that I want us to notice about this particular story that we have just written is actually the very first few words of this story way back in verse 1. The New Living Translation, if you have that, if you're reading this morning, the New Living Translation, the very first words in this story, it says, later on. In the NIV, which we just read, it says, some time later. Literally, the wording there is after these things. But let's ask ourselves this morning, after what things? You see, like any story, this particular story that we just read, it is written within a context. There's stuff happening after this story, and there's stuff that's happening before this story. Just before this story, in the 10 chapters before this narrative, Abraham has left his home. Picture it. He's left his family based on a mysterious voice from God. Catch this. Not once, but twice, he has lied. Lied, yes. And, and passed off his wife as a sister to protect himself. That's a bad story. He has rescued his nephew Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. That's both a good story and a bad story, a sad story. He has agreed to a complicated plan to birth a son to Hagar named Ishmael. Extremely complex story. He's been circumcised as a physical symbol of the covenant promise to God. That's a painful story. He has experienced the joy and the excitement of seeing Isaac, his son born, the promised son. That's a happy story, and he's been a peace negotiator among foreign powers, a very challenging story. All this life stuff, all of this life story creates the setting for what happens in Genesis 22. Why do I mention all this? Because, friends, I want us to be reminded that Abram, Abraham has been growing and yes, sometimes he's been messing up. But he's also maturing in his covenant relationship with God. And then, in Genesis 22, something really, really big happens. It's a defining moment. It's a hinge event in Abraham's whole life. It says there in verse 1, Some time later, God tested 
Abraham. And he tests Abraham through a command there in verse 2. God says, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Yeah, kill him. Kill him. What? Why? This voice? Is this, is this really you, God? How, how can I make sense of this? How do I swallow such a brutal command? Friends, whatever God's motivation is, he is crystal clear here with the announcement. He even clarifies it. Take your son. Yes, your only son. Yes, Isaac, that guy whom you love. Some of you are parents here. You can wrestle with the unfathomable horror of this command. Catch it. Twice in verse 6, and then again in verse 8, it says that the two of them, Abraham and Isaac, went on together. It says they went on together. Together. Those of you who are just a little bit older than me, you can probably remember watching the Andy Griffith Show. Anyone here remember that show? All right, wow. It claps for Andy Griffith. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And do you remember at the very beginning of that show, that whistle? Do you remember that? Okay, we're going to do it. All right, here we go. Help me out. <laughs> right on. Wow, you guys are great. Man, you guys are awesome. Wow. You remember that? Yeah. There's Opie, and there's Andy, and they're carrying fishing rods there. And Andy Griffith is that classic father figure, isn't he? And he has his arm around his son there. And they're walking down that path together, presumably heading home. That's the kind of picture that I picture in Genesis 22. It says twice there, Abraham and Isaac, they went on together, a father and a son, uh, uh, Andy Griffith and, and, and Opie, a picture of father-son togetherness that's marred by the ghastly and horrific reason for the occasion. See, Abraham is not going fishing. He's been commanded by God to kill his own son. Why? It doesn't explicitly say in our Bible, and really at this point in the story, we can still only imagine. Now I want you to follow along with me for, for a few minutes. Down through the ages, there have been lots of suggestions as to why God commanded this sacrifice. It's true, for example, as some say that in Abraham's day, it was 
exponentially more common than in our contemporary world for child sacrifices to be a part of the cultural norm. In the Canaanite world of which Abraham was a part of, it was believed, for example, that El, the fertility god, periodically, periodically demanded portions of what was produced. And often this was expressed in the sacrifice of animals, and grain offerings sometimes, and sometimes children. And so as crazy and chilling as this may sound to you and me, God's command would have at least been more familiar in Abraham's conceptual worldview. But, of course, this still does not explain why God would command this. And yes, it seems in clear violation of God's value for life and his aversion for child sacrifices expressed later in the law and in the prophets. And so some people, a lot smarter than me, have come up with other suggestions. Some say, for example, that the reason for this brutal command, kill your son, was to actually strengthen Abraham's faith. Yes. And certainly, this is the most traditional and common view. Our New Living Translation, if you have that this morning, in verse 1, it interpretively says, God tested Abraham's faith and obedience. It's a popular view. But recognize that while it says God tested Abraham, it does not clearly, in the original translation, say why he actually tested Abraham. We still do not know with certainty why God commanded this sacrifice. And so, others have said that God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, to give Isaac, the son, a first-hand experience of how real God actually was. God wanted to see Isaac to learn, not through a hand-me-down faith through his father, but a striking first-hand reality that it was God behind the promise. Compelling idea. Others have said that the command was set to allow us, to allow you and me, centuries later, to be inspired at how truly committed and faithful Abraham was to God's promise. Kingswood president, our own Kingswood president and Old Testament scholar Steve Lennox, heavy hitter, has commented on Abraham's life this way, quote, in Abraham's life, God provided a picture of what it means to follow him. By watching how Abraham became God's friend, we discover how we can become God's friend as well. I like that. What's he saying? He's saying that just like the way some of you who are young artists study the techniques of of other artists in order to find your own style. So accordingly, God has given us this Abraham story as a gift to help each of us make our own faith masterpiece as well. Compelling idea. Still others have suggested that the command to kill Isaac was given for God's benefit 
so that God, even though God knew what Abraham's response was going to be, and even though God knew that he would not let Abraham actually sacrifice Isaac, it was done so that God could gain worship from this experience. Like God asking us to pray, even though he knows what we're going to pray and say. And even though he may actually have an answer in motion already. Or like God asking us to praise him, like we have this morning, regardless of the fact that he already knows how we feel about him. That's another thought about this story. And yet even still, there's other interpretations to explain God's unusual command here. Some say that it is designed to paint a picture of the Father's plan in sacrificing a son and perhaps a foreshadowing of the death of another son, God's son, Jesus, as the way to seal God's covenant with his people forever. And there's lots of convincing uh, agreement about this argument too. Certainly it is a shocking reminder in this passage of the lengths and the sacrifice that God was willing to go for our own salvation. And if this is the case, in verse 8, Abraham's answer to Isaac's question, where is the lamb for sacrifice, it has a stinging double meaning, doesn't it? Abraham says, God will provide a lamb, my son. How striking. How ironic. How impacting. That in God's salvation story, the ultimate lamb that was sacrificed turned out to be God himself. See, all of these suggestions about what God did here, they're all really, really well documented. And some of them are pretty convincing. They're interpretations that have been argued by brilliant women and, and, and really, really smart men who have devoted their lives to faithful hermeneutical exegesis, the focus or the study of the word yet, at the end of the day, when it comes to knowing with certainty why God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, we're left with this. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Because, friends, we are not God. And let's face it, some things that God does, some things that God allows, we cannot know. We may never know. If you've been watching the news this week, you see the racial tension that's exploding in the United States. Bangladesh continues to mourn an ISIS attack. Locally, 
Statistics Canada has reported this week that New Brunswick's June unemployment rate has crested over 10%. More personally for me, part of my week this past week has included uh, visits to the palliative cancer ward at our hospital to chat with a friend, a hockey dad, with a young wife and two young kids who has days left on this earth. And some of you here undoubtedly, you have your own questions for God too. Why do these things happen, God? How could you let that happen? How could you allow that? How could you allow such heartache? Why? Friends, sometimes we don't know. We don't know. There is no commentary with certainty on why or what God allows sometimes. Yes, maybe there are reasonable explanations. But the truth is, we do not know entirely what God is up to sometimes. Sometimes there's just no clear explanation. Are you with me this morning? But here's what I do know. And this is what I hope that you will hold on to as, as we close this morning. I know I know, based on the passages and the promises of Scripture, that there is a God who pursues relationship with imperfect people like me. <laughs> and I am pretty convinced that some days God must watch me from heaven, and whatever that divine head looks like, he kind of drops it sometimes. You ever wonder if God does this? Hmm. <laughs> But I do hope that God, every once in a while, he sticks out his divine chest out, whatever that looks like, with pride. And he nudges some celestial being. He nods our way. And he says, that church out there in Moncton, <laughs> they got it right that time. They got it right. What else am I convinced of? I believe that he is a God that will cost us something. This story certainly reminds us of this. A God who is not necessarily safe or simple or quiet or comfortable. Clearly, this passage reminds us that God can be dangerous and demanding and puzzling and yes, sometimes prickly. And yet I have come to see, and I hope that you have too here this morning, those of you who are here, that this same untamed God, who is frankly worthy of our fear sometimes, is the very one who speaks promises and real hope into those situations in your life where there are questions the mysterious voice who
who calls out to us. And sometimes in unusual ways he does this, challenging us to believe and respond and take risks. And so, friends, my question for you this morning is, as we close, is not, do you have all the answers? My question for you today is this, have you heard the mysterious voice of God? What is God's promise that you are holding on to today in that context where you have questions? What is the word of God moving you to do today? I'd like us to close this morning with two really great quotes I came across. One's from the Bible, one's from a Presbyterian minister. First one, Presbyterian author and minister Catherine Gonzalez says it like this. The history of Christianity is not a history of men and women who believed a core set of dogmas. It's a history of men and women who heard a set of promises and then they adjusted their lives to match those promises, believing that even though they could not see it today, God would be faithful to deliver what he said he would deliver. And they hung on to that. It was in that believing God changed their nature. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, some 2,000 years before this, says it this way, quote, because of God's glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. And these are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption. Friends, if Abraham, with no Bible, no 2,000 years of church history, no tradition, no elders, not even a blueprint for a monotheistic Christian faith, just a voice telling him to do some unorthodox things. If he, if he could turn out and be called the father of all who believe, the father of many nations, I wonder, I wonder what might happen to you and to me if we were really to trust God and God's word for us. As for me, I know I will not get everything right. You might not either. I know that there will be things I never understand on this earth. But I sense, friends, that it is still worth trusting God in these things, no matter what. No matter what. You with me? Amen. God bless. <laughs>